Well, we're starting a new ser- series today, a new service. <laughs> we kind of need to do that too, maybe. Um, going to Revelation, so that's the last book in our Bible. Why don't you start turning there if you have a blue Bible like mine. It's found on page 991. Yes, Revelation might be one of the most confusing, misunderstood and therefore probably the most avoided book of the Bible. Um, but we just feel led to this book at this uh, time in, in the life and journey of Crossroads. Today what we're going to do is we're just going to get our feet wet. We're, we're going to uh, look at the, the introduction uh, to this letter and uh, get into the background of it and look at some of its major themes So I'm just telling you that at the beginning. Uh, So let's stand for the reading of God's word, if that is something you can do. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by the sending of his angel or his messenger to his servant John. This is John the disciple who also wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. John gets the last word here in the New Testament. John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God in the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, all that is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. But we're not done yet. (laughs) Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. All the peoples on the earth will mourn because of it. So shall it be. And everybody said, Amen. I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and teammate in the suffering and the kingdom and the perseverance that is ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a piece of paper, a scroll, what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. 
This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, before we uh, really do anything with this, I want to set the table for how we're going to approach Revelation. And really, what we're going to do in our approach is, is pretty simple. We're going to study Revelation the same way we study the rest of the Bible. And, and one of the important things in Bible Interpretation 101 is that you always ask, what does this text first mean to the original hearers? Before you ask, what does it mean for us today? So if you're studying First and Second Corinthians, you don't just run uh, what you read in Corinthians to 21st century Grand Rapids. You first go through the, 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 the city of Corinth, um, into its original audience in the first century. And you ask questions like, well, what did it first mean to them? What was the author's intent in writing the things that the author is writing? What is the, the original purpose of this letter? What's the historical and cultural context around the writing of this letter? And then you ask the question, what does this mean for us today? This is how we keep from reading ourselves and our culture into God's word. We need God's word to be read into our lives and into our world. So instead of us shaping God's word, we need God's word to shape us. I don't know why, but for some reason, when people come to the book of Revelation, they bypass all of this. And then we attach all of these crazy meanings to today without first asking ourselves the most basic questions. Who wrote this? Why is it written? And what is the the cultural historical context for which it is written? So the first observation I want us to make this morning is that this isn't even a book or a theological treatise. Revelation is a letter. And it's a letter that has a very specific purpose behind it. And when you and I learn the the purpose for which this letter is written in its cultural and historical context, I think it's going to take our breath away. In fact, the actual letter itself speaks to the awesome love of God. Because as we will see, God is writing this letter to pastor, to prepare seven specific churches for what they're about to face. And I don't remember, if you remember in the biblical story, going all the way back to the beginning to Abraham, when, when, when God shows up and and actually, that's not just God, that, that's, that's pre-incarnate Christ. And they show up, he shows up with two other angels um, as just a group of three strangers. And then Christ says something to uh, those who are with him. He says, shall I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And that's exactly what God does. God then tells Abraham everything that is about to happen. This is exactly what's going on in Revelation. The church like Abraham, is God's partner. And God is shepherding them. He is is preparing them for this horrific thing 
that is about to be unleashed upon them. And now I'll give you a little bit of the historical, cultural context. The Roman Empire is about to unleash a vicious persecution. It's going to be bloody, violent, devastating. And so God God says, John, write these things down. Prepare my people. Let them know the things that are about to take place. And so here we have, in in, in the first words of this, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. In fact, the word revelation in the original language is the word apocalypse, and we hear this word a lot. Apocalypse simply means unveiling. So here is Christ coming to one of the 12 disciples he trained to John, and he says, let me unveil to you what is about to happen. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see already in verse 1. Jesus says, what must soon take place? Soon as in things that are right around the corner. And then verse 3, Jesus ends it with, this time I am speaking of is near. And that near implies now. And so Christ unveils this stuff to John. Then in verse 11, he instructs John. He says, John, everything that I'm about to show you, I want you to write it down um, in, in a book, and I want you to send it out as a letter to these specific churches. Now let me just uh, show you where these churches fit on the map because they are seven actual churches in seven actual places. That is Asia Minor. And Rome had uh, regional territories with names. So you see Cappadocia, Cilicia, Galatia, Bithynia, Lycia. And then there is this territory called Asia. That's Asia in the first century. That's not Asia where Asia is today, but that's Asia in the first century, which is all part of Asia Minor. And it's within Asia now that you have these seven places where there are seven specific churches. I want us to see that, because that's important. Another thing that I want us to see is that the imagery and the symbolism is going to be very rich in this letter. We're going to read about a dragon. We're going to read about a beast. We're going to read about a sea monster. We're going to read about someone who is called 666. And all of these creatures are unhurling death upon God's people. And then rather than taking that that imagery and running it today and trying to figure out, like, our locust helicopters and... And all this stuff, we need to understand what it meant to them. Because I can promise you, every word of this letter was understood by the first century hearers. And here's what I want to say, shame on us. For being so American-centered, so me-centered, 
that in the interpretation of this book, we don't first take the time to understand that this letter was written to seven specific churches for a specific reason. That we wouldn't be too cool to think that it might not help us for us to get ourselves in their shoes to know how they responded to real things that God himself had to prepare them for. And I want us to know right now that being a Christian in first century Asia Minor was a whole different thing than being a Christian in the 21st century in America. Because to be a Christian today in modern America pretty pretty much means that we, we have privilege, we're on top, we're the majority. It can even, in our context, mean something cool and hip if you do your Christianity in a cool and hip way. That's not the case for people living in Asia Minor in the first century. They are the little guy. They are the people at the bottom. They are looked at as cultural weirdos. And I want to get in their shoes. I want to get into their shoes of what it looks like to be the little guy when the big shots are, are, are coming at you to take you out. I also want to understand this book from the mindset of the author, who is a Jew, John. John is a Jew. All the disciples are Jews. Jesus is a Jew. The church largely at this time is, is, is Jewish. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take off our Western lenses by which we look um, at the text. And I want to put on Hebraic lenses to get into how they make sense of reality because that too is very different. And this is going to require, just like when you do cross-cultural missions, a ton of humility. You don't go onto the mission field with all of your culture, but you understand your culture to make sure you're not just giving your culture, but you're giving them Christ in a way that they can understand it. Same principle applies here. So you ask, well, what's the difference between um, the Western eyes that we've been given to make sense of reality and, and Hebraic eyes? Without oversimplifying this too much, it's the difference between thinking concretely and thinking abstractly. In fact, this week I was at the B-shop and teaching all week about the Bible, and I was teaching on, on, on this very thing because it so helped me uh, understand the Bible in, in all its richness that much more. To take my Western lenses off and put my Hebraic lenses on. And I did this little example with them is after telling them how they think abstractly and how many of the writers think concretely because that's how they thought in that day, I asked them to give me a definition of God in one word. And this happens every single time. God is love. God is faithful. God is truth. 
God is holy. God is omnipresent. Uh, God is powerful. And then I asked them to close their eyes. And I asked them, what do you see? When I say God is truth, God is holy, God is faithful, God is pure, God is love. And they'll try to come up with something, but they don't see anything. It's because the way that we do truth is abstractly, through definition and proposition. But the ancients did truth concretely. So if you asked a Jew in the first century to describe God, they would say God is living water. God is shade. God is my shepherd. God is eagle's wings. God is a strong tower that I can run into. God is my father. And see, when you close your eyes, you, 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 can, you can actually see what we're talking about. And so this is how Jesus taught. This is why most of us spend all of our time in Paul's letters, because Paul is writing to Westerners, and he understands that the way we do truth is through definition, through point, sub-point, sub-point, point. But much of the Bible doesn't make sense of reality that way. So take verse 4. Because verse 4 tells us explicitly who this letter is from and who it's to. As I mentioned, uh, it's to the seven churches. Who's it from? See, now we're stepping our toes into uh, the imagery that's in this book. You have this clause, the seven spirits before God's throne. Seven's going to be all over Revelation. And here's what I want to say. To a Westerner, numbers are quantities. Numbers to a first century Jew, yes, they are quantities, but they are also symbols. And the number seven to a first century Jew is the, the number of completion, perfection, because it's on the seventh day that God completed the creation of the world. And so not only is it the number of completion and perfection, but they also attach this number to God because God is the most perfect, complete reality there is. So now just apply this to the two sevens that we have in our text today. First of all, to the seven churches. Yes, this letter is written to seven actual churches. But implied as well is the complete church of God, the whole church, which also includes us. This letter is written to us. And the seven spirits before God's throne, well, seven is God's number. Therefore, this number here is symbolic of God. It's another way of saying through image, God's spirit. And so verse four and five actually give us this beautiful picture of who this letter is from. The letter is from him who, sit, who is and who was and who is to come from God the Father. And it's from the seven spirits before his throne. It's from God the Spirit. And it's from Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. These churches are getting a letter 
from God himself. A text. Almost like open your iPhone and here's a text from God. Also what these first verses provide us is a taste of the major themes of Revelation. And we're going to see that all the major themes in Revelation center around one massive theme. The one massive theme of Revelation is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now for some of us, that might be a bit ho-hum. Some of you might be thinking, Rod, uh, tell me something I don't already know. But to a first century Christian in Asia Minor, Jesus Christ is Lord, is the foundation of their life. It's precious to them. It's so precious to them that they're willing to give up everything to believe it, to declare it. In fact, let me give you just a little bit more of the background of, of this book. This, this book is written at a time when empire and emperor are so pronounced. When, when, when these forces of, of empire and emperor dominate every aspect of life. And I was trying in my head to like, how, how can I get them to get a taste of, of, of what it would have been like to live during this time under Rome? The closest thing is Nazi Germany. If you know anything about Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany came under the spell of a Fuhrer, where a propaganda machine that included rallies, marches, parades, demonstrations of all Germans' might and power to teach a German that Germans are the master race. And where anyone who went against this idea of Nazi Germany, there was a death camp and a gas chamber awaiting you. And everyone was under the power and the spell of a fear. Listen, Germany made Rome look like child's play in terms of empire and emperor. In fact, Hitler got all of his ideas from Rome, from the flags to the parades, the marches, all the propaganda. Because Rome wasn't just an idea. Rome wasn't just a worldview that everybody had to prescribe to. Rome was also something to behold from the ingenuity of its buildings, where it is building world-class roads and building world-class cities adorned with marble theaters and spas and all the goodies that we even have in our modern day. Rome was about glory. Rome promised glory. And at the center of all of this is not just a president. It's not even just a fuhrer or even a king. But it's a man who called himself Lord. I'll give you a little history here. Julius Caesar was the first Roman Empire to be deified. 
The Roman Senate deified him right after his death. So then his adopted son, Augustus, who becomes the next emperor as son of Julius Caesar, now has the title, Son of God. Who is the emperor when Jesus is born? It's Augustus, Son of God. In fact, the fastest growing religion in the empire at the time of Jesus is emperor worship. Where Caesar declared, all glory, all honor, all power belongs to me. In fact, this is even something to think about. Herod the Great, who was ruling Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, he built three temples in Israel alone dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And the title that Caesar went by was Lord. In fact, it included all these clauses. Lord of Lords, Son of God, Pontifex Maximus, which is our word for Pope. And this title was plastered on coins, temples, city gates, and Caesar statues that filled the empire Listen, even Hitler in all his megalomania never called himself God. And here's what Caesar promised to the world. He promised them gospel. Because gospel is is a word that's first popularized by the Roman Empire. It's the gospel according to Caesar. It's the good news of Pax Ramona, of, of, of Roman peace. Even the term evangelist is a specific profession of the empire. Anytime Caesar won a great victory, or anytime Caesar was visiting your town, there would be all these runners that would go, go throughout the empire called evangelists to tell you about the great acts of Caesar, to tell you Caesar's coming. And now let me cut to the chase. In all of this, the emperors demanded full allegiance. This isn't just lip service allegiance, because really to live during this time, to participate in Roman life, to participate in the Roman marketplace, to participate in the Roman world, you had to declare Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't, you couldn't participate. And there's a gas chamber awaiting you called crucifixion. Now, most scholars believe that Revelation was written either during the reign of Emperor Nero, sometime between 66 and 68 AD, or during the reign of Domitian, which is around 100 AD. Because what both of these emperors had in common, not only were they both megalomaniacs, but Domitian, take this guy, he even made his own wife address him as Lord and God. And anyone who didn't address him, Domitian, Lord and God, he threatened to put to death. And these two emperors had such intense hate for this little sect in their empire 
called Christians for one reason. What is the message of the early church? Jesus Christ is Lord. And Caesar, you aren't. All glory, said the church. All honor, all power belong to Christ. And they didn't just believe that in their hearts, but they preached it. They declared it fearlessly, courageously to the world. Do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord? Look at John 5. John's hinting on on, on these things already. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. one One of Caesar's titles is is princeps, which means firstborn of Rome. John says, the Lord we worship is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. And then he concludes that by saying, and he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth, borrowing language from Psalm 2, where where all the kings of the earth are, are standing against God and against his anointed, and God's just making a mockery of them because he says, I have put my king on my holy hill, and you better bow to, down to him and kiss him lest he be angry. Or how about verse 7? It says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Now here's what I want to teach you before you just jump to this being a reference about Christ returning. We need to know the text. Because this is an exact quote from where? Does anybody know? Daniel 7. Where Daniel has a vision, much like John has a vision. And in this vision, Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds. And look at what John says in verse 13. He uses the same thing, same language that Daniel uses. One like a son of man. Now going back to the vision that Daniel has in Daniel 7, it begins with these four evil beasts who actually come out of the sea to dominate the world. And then Daniel says, and I kept looking and I kept looking, and then he sees a dramatic change of events. The beasts are slain. Their dominion is taken away. And Daniel says, and I kept looking, and I kept looking, and I saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds. Again, he's not coming down from heaven to earth, but he's returning from earth to heaven. And he goes up and he presents himself before the Ancient of Days. I want us to see this picture because we live in a world where it looks like there are evil beasts who are in control. But this one, like a son of man, approaches the living God and he approaches him as the great victor, as the dragon slayer, as the one who's worthy of all glory and honor. 
And it's while in the presence of the Almighty that the Almighty knights him. Exalts him to the highest place. Puts him in charge of all things. All authority in earth is given to him. And John is quoting this verse to encourage the believers. It might look like the dragon and the beast is in charge. But your Lord is the great dragon slayer who sits at God's right hand and he is the ruler. He is in control of all things. And therefore, we're going to see that a great, revela- great theme of revelation is this. Jesus is Lord. Worship him. Give your allegiance to the true king. Fall at the feet of the true son of God. Declare to the world, Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you? Does Jesus have your full allegiance right now? We are living in a world that is quickly becoming Rome. And there are all kinds of ways a person can get entangled in Rome. You might not declare Caesar to be Lord, but you might worship what Caesar's kingdom provides. Caesar's kingdom in the first century is the engine to the whole world economy. It brought prosperity to millions. Does that sound familiar? In Revelation 18, Rome, called Babylon, is going to fall. And not only will Rome fall, but when Rome falls, the whole system is going to collapse. Now, I'm not going to declare anything um, obnoxious right now because that stuff is all in God's hands. But here's what I want to hypothetically ask. If Rome fell today, if the whole system fell apart, how would you react? Because Revelation 18 describes the morning and the weeping of these merchants and their businessmen who lose it all. Who do you worship? Who do you bow your life to? What gets your affections? What gets your thoughts? What gets your best energy? What what is it that if it were taken away from your life right now would cause you to mourn? This is a book about people who didn't just declare Jesus as Lord, they worshiped him as Lord. Another theme in Revelation Jesus is Lord, follow him. 
walk in his path. Jesus actually taught the world a very radical path. It's a path of suffering and sacrifice. And we're going to come to find that in Revelation, Jesus has a very special title. Does anyone know what it is? He's called the Lamb. Or oftentimes, the Lamb Slaughtered. Because what we're going to see is the glorified Christ, the one who stands before the Ancient of Days as the world's victor, he still bears his scars because the suffering of Jesus is a big part of Jesus' glory. Because the way Jesus comes, the way he slays the great dragon is by being slain himself. Jesus wins by losing. Jesus triumphs through defeat. Jesus' glory, which far outseeds the most glorious thing the world has ever produced, is seen in Jesus' suffering. And in the book of Revelation, those who follow Jesus follow Jesus in his suffering. They have their robes dipped in blood. In fact, listen to what uh, John is already saying in his intro in verse 9. John says to the seven churches, I am your teammate in suffering. In fact, when you read the New Testament closely, all the New Testament writers are talking about suffering because suffering is one of the things it means to be a follower of Christ. Paul said it himself. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And I want to have fellowship in sharing with Christ's sufferings. Are we following Jesus? Are we walking Jesus' path? Because I think so much of the church today wants to make Jesus into this superhero so that we can believe that those who follow him become junior superheroes. Jesus is not a superhero. Jesus is a lamb slaughtered. Because this is how Jesus wins. He wins by losing. He He said this, he said, if anyone would follow me, he must give up his life. For what does it profit to gain the whole world, yet forfeit one's own soul? The one who loses his life is the one who's going to find true life in me. Let me tell you about the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was severely scourged, tied by ropes on an X-shaped cross where he hung for two days and expired. James was beheaded with a sword. John is the only one who wasn't martyred. He was thrown, though, in boiling oil, but unharmed. Philip, crucified. Bartholomew, otherwise known as Nathaniel, was beaten, flayed, crucified, upside down. Thomas, Burned up in an oven. Matthew, axed to death. James, thrown down from the temple tower, still not dead, so they clubbed him to death. Jude, crucified. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Matthias, the one who was chosen to replace Judas, stoned and beheaded. 
Paul, beheaded. This is the world these guys lived. And they followed Jesus. And they walked his path. Are we following Jesus? Are we walking his path? See, as much as we want to believe that Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to, that is such hogwash today. Jesus' suffering means this beautiful thing that when we suffer, it's not in vain. That our suffering, like Jesus' suffering, is achieving a glory and a resurrection that far outweighs the most glorious thing this world has to offer. And so Revelation will depict Jesus' followers, not with guns in hand, but they're going to be this army that's dressed in robes of white with palm branches in hand, simply living out their calling as kingdom of priests. And what's a priest? It's our calling. In the ancient world, because no one could see God, a priest's job was to represent God to the worshiper by showing the world what the God is like through the priest. The way you saw what the priest or the God's face was like, his hands, his heart, was to the priest. And then it worked the other way too. A priest also represented the people to God. He is the one who washed them up and made them clean so that they could come into the presence of God. Church, this is our role. Our role is to show the world what God is like. The world is going to know who Jesus Christ is and that he is Lord through us. And our job is to go into the world and through Jesus, wash him up and make them presentable to God. And when we live out this calling, the world is going to hate us just like it hated the perfect priest Christ. But Jesus said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Take heart, I have overcome the world because Jesus Christ is Lord. Worship him. Follow him. Suffer with him. Because revelation lets us know that those of us who are in Christ are more than conquerors. We are. Let's pray. God, right now, I, I, I pray that all of us are asking ourselves this question. Who is our true Lord? Who is our true God? Is it Caesar? In Caesar's kingdom? And all that Caesar's kingdom provides? Or can our hearts truly say, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. And irrespective of what Caesar's kingdom does to me in my life, 
You, Jesus, will have my full allegiance. 